Welcome to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined by Social Media Editor Dr. Sarah Wright. We're bringing you a special episode with our guest, Dr. Katie Garrett. Katie, we're so excited to speak with you today. Katie is the Director of Diagnostic Imaging at Rudin Riddle Equine Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. In this episode, we're going to talk about Katie's July 2022 JAVMA Current One Health Manuscript, When Radiography and Ultrasonography Are Not Enough the use of computed tomography and magnetic resonance imaging for equine lameness cases. Dr. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here. Great. Let's dive right in. Your manuscript discusses diagnostic imaging modalities for equine lameness cases. Can you give our listeners a bit of background information on CT and MRI for equine lameness? Sure. Um, Lameness is obviously a really frustrating problem for horse owners and equine veterinarians. And for a long time, really all we had was radiography and ultrasonography, which are both wonderful modalities. We still use them all the time and they're great, but sometimes they can't get you the answer. So when MRI and then CT started coming on the scene for equine lameness cases, it gave us so many more tools in our toolbox to to find the answer because ultimately when you have a lame horse, that's what you need to know is why is the horse lame so that then you can figure out, well, great, what are my treatment options? What's the prognosis? Where are we going to go from here sort of thing? And sometimes, especially for really challenging areas like the foot, radiographs and ultrasound, they just they just can't get you what you need. So when we can use MRI to really investigate all of those soft tissues in the foot and CT to look at, you know, little fractures that we just can't find or can't find soon enough with radiography. I mean, it just opens up so much more for our horses to be able to treat them more effectively because ultimately that's all anybody wants is to get them well again and get them back doing their jobs and and the people enjoying them. I really liked reading your manuscript because it really made me think about how vets are also investigators too. It's important to find the root of the problem. And sometimes it's not always straightforward or easy, which I feel like in most cases is actually the case. So Uh, how do you find diagnostic imaging relate to One Health? um, I guess the best way for me to think about it is how important horses and, and all animals, but specifically here, horses are for human well-being. And I mean, to be honest, it's not like we with the horses are teaching, you know, human radiologists how to interpret their images differently or better. Um, But what we can do is keep horses in people's lives in a more effective way. I mean, no one wants something bad to happen to their horse. And if something bad does happen, if we can get that horse back with, you know, doing its job and making that person happy, we're helping that person's life. Um, So maybe it's a little wider view of One Health than is typical, but I guess I really see how important horses are to a lot of people um, and how much people love their horses and animals and really think that's a pretty valuable goal. Yeah, thank you, Katie. I I definitely appreciate that. And and with the advent of pet CT, especially for our performance animals, uh, performance horses, uh, will really be leading the way for humans to follow behind as well. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, that is sort of uncharted territory. I mean, you think about pet scan and people and and you think about cancer and it's, I mean, it is great for that, but I mean, all the work that, that Matthew Spree has done, it's, it's pretty cool. 
Yeah, thank you. I called him Michael twice at the AAAP. <laughs> and I, so I had to email him and say, I'm sorry. I, don't, I had one of those moments. He's, he's a real leader, as are you. Yeah, well, he was probably super nice about it because he is an incredibly nice person. He is. Um, you, you two have made really remarkable accomplishments. And you're actually trained as a surgeon. So I'm, I'm curious what within surgery uh, made you really so passionate about not only musculoskeletal, but you also have a strong passion for laryngeal ultrasonography and imaging of the larynx. What, what in your surgery or maybe in your own horses uh, really inspired you to go down these two super specific specialities? Um, I guess, and Sarah, you actually alluded to this a little bit earlier. I really love puzzles and finding the answer. Um, I mean, I do crossword puzzles, for example, and getting to the root of a problem, knowing why something is happening, to me, that is the most exciting part of veterinary medicine is doing that investigation and and finding the answer. Um, To be perfectly honest, fixing the problem isn't as exciting to me. I'm thrilled that there are other people for whom it is. that's the most exciting part, but I like I really love problem solving and and figuring out exactly why something is the way it is. Yes, you can fix them. I just want to know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll fix them. You find out. <laughs> Perfect. It is um it's a very interesting point like when uh applicants to veterinary school when I read their cover letters and I heard Lori Teller, who's the current uh, president of the AVMA, and she said this the other day too, like veterinarians are problem solvers. And so when I read that in, in students' cover letters, you know, the one where the bird hit the window and died and my <laughs> mom and dad couldn't save it. So ever since then, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Like, I'm like, no, 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 we're problem solvers. That's that's what we are. If If you don't like doing that, then maybe veterinary medicine isn't your profession. Yeah, no, I, I think you're I think you're right. So you've been wildly successful across everything you've done from practice ownership, leading in associations, uh, leading in these areas of that you talk about in your manuscript. If you were going to talk to a veterinary student or maybe a resident, what couple tips would you give somebody to emulate your success? Um, I mean, I guess I guess I would first um maybe dis- like I don't I don't see myself as wildly successful. I see myself as having been in a really fortunate position and having been able to work with some amazing people and was lucky enough to take advantage of those opportunities. So um, I guess the first thing that I would say is to find what you are passionate about and pursue that. You know, I mean, hopefully it's something that, you know, can pay the bills and put food on the table. But one thing that I love about my career, I love what I do a lot. And it makes days when things aren't going super well, it makes it a lot easier to take when under it, I still have this real passion for what I do. So I guess my per- first piece of advice would be, you know, make sure you're truly passionate about what aspect of veterinary medicine you want to pursue. I mean, don't do what someone else wants you to do. I mean, really make sure you're doing what you want to do. Um, and then my second piece of advice would probably be to try and surround yourself with really excellent people who work the way that you want to work, who practice the kind of medicine that you want to practice. And, you know, at the beginning of your career, those people are all mentors because you're new, frankly. Um, And I was, I have been so, so fortunate to have had amazing mentors from the time that I was in college and high school um, up until, I mean, today, ongoing forever and ever. And um, 
I always felt like I knew what kind of vet I wanted to be and how to be an ethical practitioner and the standards that I wanted to hold myself up to. And I really credit all of those people who I was lucky enough to be around for instilling that in me. So I guess those are my two best pieces of advice. And I know you and I were talking a little bit before this started about that mentor-mentee relationship and how important it is and the impact it can really have on you. And it's just so cool to get to turn around and say, hey, I'm helping someone when I used to actually be in their shoes and was asking the same questions as someone else. So, Well, I mean, I think it's sort of when you're young, you don't necessarily really know how much effort your people who are your mentors are putting in, probably because they're you know, really good at it. And hopefully they enjoy being around you and helping you. But um, it's, I think we all have sort of an obligation to pay it back all the things that the profession and and people gave to us to make sure that we're helping that next generation with those little legs up and, and little bits of help that, you know, when we can offer them. I totally agree with you. I was actually just helping a vet student with an abstract that she was preparing for a conference. It's her first conference submission. And it was so crazy to be able to look at that abstract and really, especially from an associate editor viewpoint now and say, hey, I know exactly what you need to fix and this is what you should do. So it's really cool. And it's nice to see it come full circle. Well, it is. And one thing that we always kind of love is when our uh, our old interns and our new interns overlap for a little bit. And every year the old interns look at the new interns and they're like, we we knew more than that, right? And we're like, no, no, you didn't. But it's okay. You weren't supposed to know anymore. Look how far you've come. And they don't have any idea how much they've learned until the new interns get there and they can really see the difference. Sounds familiar. I definitely have been in that role a few times in my advanced training. Yeah. So back to you for a moment. You are currently the Director of Diagnostic Imaging at Root and Riddle Equine Hospital. How has this position changed your perspective on One Health? Um, So I'm really lucky in that I've gotten to see and use, you know, and now we have here in the practice, a lot of really cutting edge technology, at least for horses. Um, So I'm fortunate to be in a position where I have the opportunity to look at those things. And I work at a large practice where we have the caseload to support you know, putting some of those things kind of on the ground floor. Um, You know, we put a PET scanner in uh, last year and that's, I mean, that's, that's really amazing to have things coming, you know, so quickly from human medicine into a practice and having the luxury of maybe not having to wait um, as long as if I were in a different position. Um, The other thing that I really enjoy is that I get to work with all of the veterinarians in the practice. So I still get to see a lot of different things and all of my days are different. Um, You know, it's not like I work with the same team every day. I get to see a little bit of everything. I think that's one of the best parts about being a veterinarian too, is like you said, no two days are ever the same. It's always going to be different, whether it's the people, the animals, even the clients too. So it always keeps it interesting and makes you think like on your feet. (laughs) It does. I mean, no one wants to do the same crossword puzzle twice. Need a new challenge. Always. Most definitely. So you've done so much great work in this field, as we've heard. What is the clinical take-home message from your work that you would like other veterinarians to know? I think probably the most important thing is that these these are great modalities. You know, CT and MRI are so fantastic. but they're not a lameness meter. They're not a pain locator. They have to be used in the clinical context of what's wrong with the horse. I mean, 
I, I don't think a day will ever come where we put a horse in a machine and it just spits out, you know, this is what the problem is and this is how you treat it. And this is exactly how the horse is going to do. That's never going to happen. So I think the most important thing is to know when to use these modalities, how to appropriately use them to get the best possible answers. Um, and that they are out there, they are available. So it can really be kind of a, a teamwork effort between the owner, the referring veterinarian and the referral center to really kind of bring all of this together. Um, and to not, you know, to not be afraid to call up someone and say, hey, I have this case and I don't know what to do. Is there anything you guys can do to, to help us? Yeah, thank you, Katie. Like, uh, just for a second before we'll go on to the next question, what you talk about is, I, I echo what you say. Like, I love, love, love being a veterinarian. So proud to be a veterinarian and now editor at the AVMA. And they're they're not that dissimilar. People always like, I was, as you know, a surgeon at Cornell for more than 30 years, an equine surgeon. And I didn't walk away from that. I walked to publishing and, and it, it still is problem solving. How can we make that better? How can we make that smoother? So it, it's still, I think that's just in our nature. If you love to solve problems, uh, then you're going to be happy as a veterinarian and you'll find your niche. Oh, I think you're right. I mean, and it's, you're a great example of how you can take the skill set and, and transfer it. And that is something that is so great about veterinary medicine. I mean, if you want to pick up and do something different, your skills are so transferable. I mean, you, you know how to do stuff, you know how to lead a team. I mean, there are so many great skills. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. In addition to all the other things you do, you're the uh, 2022 American Association of Equine Practitioners Vice President. What do you see as an opportunity for the AAP and the AVMA, or maybe even more specifically our journals, JABMA and AJVR? What are some opportunities that we can partner together, do you think, that we can help our equine practitioners? Well, I think probably the most important issue facing equine practitioners, as both of you have probably heard, is the issue of sustainability in equine practice. I mean, we have fewer people joining the profession. We have too many people leaving it. Um, you know, there's uh, sort of a wave of retirements that will be coming. And I mean, this is a this is a huge issue, both, you know, just from this standpoint of do we have enough veterinarians to help the horses who are around who need help every day, but also how do we keep this amazing profession attractive to people so that they're not burning out so that they can pay back their student debt? I mean, these are, these are real realities. And, um, you know, I know that the AVMA has a ton of resources on, you know, time management and well-being and, you know, fostering, um, a healthy workplace culture. So I don't think that AEP needs to reinvent the wheel on a lot of these things. And, you know, AJVR and JAVMA, I mean, I've noticed, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, but you guys really seem to be, you know, moving on these things. And yes, of course, they're amazing scientific journals and they always will be, but, you know, you guys are, I don't know if sneaking is the right word, but you have a more holistic approach to being a veterinarian. And, you know, as I would imagine two of the most widely read journals probably in the world, you know, JAVMA has a really unique uh, forum to get some of these issues that people probably don't even know are issues out there. Um, so I think that's probably one of the best ways that AEP and AJVR, JAVMA um, can work together. Yeah, I agree. Not just those manuscripts that are in the, you know, our membership is over a hundred thousand. So those holistic uh, 
more social sciences sort of manuscripts, wellness, sleep, mm-hmm. all those things that are so important. They really, when they're published and 100,000 AVMA members read them, they really do effectuate change. And it's not just those members. We've got the amazing social media editor right here, and <laughs> he sends all those things out. So you can't hide from these things anymore, and, and you shouldn't, but it brings a, a whole nother level of awareness. So we're, we're really excited to keep working with you as you keep climbing up your AAP leadership ladder. Oh, well, I, I love working with you guys. It's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's, it's really nice. Um, you know, that the AVMA I think has really started to, you know, focus a little bit more on some of these equine issues, which is, you know, always, always really important. So transitioning now to a more personal notes. Now we talked a little bit about this question earlier. But what is the most interesting or oldest item in your desk drawer? And can you show us? Okay, well, I'll be honest. I'm not actually in my office because it's really echoey. So I'm in someone else's office. Um, So, but I would have brought my item. I wish I had because it's a really good visual aid. So this is pretty hokey, but um, I have like an actual box of gold stars, like the stickers that like your teacher would put on your papers. Um, and it started kind of as a joke, you know, like, oh, you know, like, good job, gold star. But uh, people are starting to sort of covet the gold stars a little bit. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't give them out that much, but it turns out like people really like getting a gold star. Um, and for a while, people would ask for them. And I'm like, no, this is absolutely not how this goes. Like, you have to, you just get a gold star. So that's probably the weirdest thing in my desk drawer. I like that, though, like positive reinforcement. I mean, I'm sure that helps, too. You're a teaching hospital, I know. So maybe with house officers. <laughs> I, guess, I mean, it's like it seems pretty silly, but like, you know, some of the techs will like put them on their badges, you know, and things like that. So I feel a little bit silly. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's nice to just to have a little like add a girl on the shoulder. What's the most recent Katie, the gold star Garrett, which what's the most recent one you gave out? Uh, actually I gave two of them yesterday to two of my technicians because, uh, we had a really, really busy long day yesterday and they were, I mean, they were just absolute troopers. Um, and so they, those were the, the gold star moments yesterday. Is that your nickname in the hospital then? That's what I would call you. Um, (laughs) I mean, if it is, I don't know about it. (laughs) That's fair. I like that. That's pretty good. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. No, seriously, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to talk with you and just learn more about your manuscript and also more about you and kind of what inspired you to do this work. Uh, well, I mean, like I said, thank you so much for asking. This has been a lot of fun. You can read Dr. Garrett's manuscript in our virtual collection of open access currents and one health manuscripts on our journal website. I'm Dr. Sarah Wright with Dr. Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to. Until next time, take care, and we'll see you soon.